Hyperno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hyperno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Uh, so welcome uh, everybody, dear guests, and welcome to the first live edition of the podcast Hiberno Goethe. Very excited about that. This recording uh, will be episode number 12. And in case um, you are wondering who Kieran Mori from NeuroFM talked to before, you can listen to all episodes, of course, on the websites of the Goethe Institute Ireland, NeuroFM, and Apple and Spotify, of course. So previous guests, for example, are uh, writer Mia Gallagher, choreographer John Scott, artists uh, Ger- Gerard Byrne and René Böll, harpists, Siobhan Armstrong, Irish international football player Emily Kraft, and many more. They all talked to Kieran uh, about the two countries, Ireland and Germany, and even more countries near and far, cultural experiences, languages, and landscapes. Many guests recommend books, films, music related to their lives or meaningful to their lives. And you will not be surprised to hear that Hugo Hamilton's Speckled People is mentioned more than once on the lists. So before introducing Hugo Hamilton, let me thank uh, Kieran, uh, Neil, uh, Jared and Doherty from NeuroFM for transporting the studio uh, into the library here tonight. It's uh, for our birthday, let's say. Uh, And also, I would like to thank them all for a wonderful collaboration since the very first episode of German-Irish Conversations. Uh, May I remind you uh, to switch off your phones or put them on flight mode, please, so uh, the recording will not capture those. And I'm delighted to welcome Hugo Hamilton tonight, especially since we are celebrating 60 years of Goethe Institute in Dublin, and Hugo has been here in the library especially many times. Hugo Hamilton was born and uh, grew up in Dublin. He is the author of nine novels, a collection of short stories, stage plays and memoirs, The Speckled People, Dublin Palms. His German connection, as you might know, is of course his German mother. So thank you all for coming tonight and enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Aya, and thank you, Ulrike. Thanks for having us here. And the idea of the Hiberno Goethe is to look at that cross-cultural space between Irish and German cultures. And I suppose when it comes to that, there's no one better place to talk about it than someone who's a, a real expert in this field, if I may use the term expert, like Hugo Hamilton. And perhaps for those of you who haven't read Speckled People or who are not familiar with that book, maybe it's a good place to start, is to let Hugo himself tell you a little bit about that book. Yeah, thank you very much, Kieran. Uh, it's wonderful to be here in person in the Goethe Institute again. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a strange story in the 1950s 
uh, straight after the war, my mother came over to Ireland uh, through sort of contacts in Catholic organisations to work as an au pair or a governess, as it was called then. And um, she then met an, ex an eccentric or a strange Irishman uh, from West Cork who, who really wanted to revive the Irish language. That was his main, um, his main goal in life. And um, I, th I think she didn't realise like, what she was letting herself in for when she agreed to marry him. Uh, this kind of language war that he had in mind. Uh, she thought, oh yeah, why not speak the Irish language? She thought, she thought it was a good idea. But then as soon as they were married and they had the children and, and we, we came along, it became a very sort of strict, uh, as I say, a language war in which he, he forbade the English language. So the language that everybody was speaking on the street in outside, uh, he wouldn't allow into the house. Um, and in The Speckled People, I describe it from that childhood point of view, where the, where the child, we, we all sort of effectively grew up in Germany, because that was the language of the house. My mother spoke about her hometown, um, and everything in the house, inside the house, was German. And then we looked out the window and it was Ireland, there was this country where they spoke this strange language that we didn't understand. Um, and then we sort of spoke Irish to my father as well, further complicating everything. And um, yes, yeah, so, so we were always <clears throat> in between these languages, uh, and in between these, also in between the geography. You know, I just remember as a child, we, we understood the geography of my mother's hometown much better than we did the the streets of Glasgow, that we, where we actually lived. You know, <clears throat> and when you spoke. Um, the language at home, you clearly spoke German to your mother and Irish to your mm. father. But what did the brothers and sisters speak between them? Oh, we all spoke German between us. Okay. You know. yeah. And my father was, had good German as well. He, yeah. he, um, he learned it, you know, as I say in German, als trotz, um, you know, against the yes. British, you know. Yeah. He was sort of sidestepping Britain, yeah. um, as we have done now as well since Brexit, you know. Yeah. We've sort of a direct link to Germany now. Um, and he has sort of, this is what he wanted. He would be very happy today. So <clears throat> do, would you feel that um, German was your first language and that's w where you would have been most comfortable at that age? Oh, yeah. Does that German, change over time? German is actually my mother tongue. You know? Yeah. And, and still is. Like, uh, I mean, I often ask myself, like, what language do I dream in? It's, it does vary yeah. every now and again. But... Uh, I do um, subconsciously think in, in, in German. Um, you, you know the way when you, when you travel to another country and your mobile phone switches to a different network? Well, that's what happens to me inside my head when I go to Germany. I switch into the German language and all the words, yeah. all the objects turn into German. And <clears throat> you know you were brought up in German in this kind of almost this uh, secretive closed down space. So mm. would you have been aware of German nursery rhymes or would you have been aware mm. of things that normal German children in Germany would have been aware of? Oh yeah, we, we, we had all the nursery rhymes, all the German stories. The, the, um, we had 
um, wrote Caption, the Red Riding Hood story. Yeah. And I remember hearing that other people say this on the in, in school, and I didn't know what Red Riding Hood meant. I didn't know what that story meant. And only later on connected it up to the German story. So very much everything we had in, in our house was, mm. was straight from Germany. You know? Did your father read you um, fairy tales Oscar Elga, so you would add in the Irish language version of Little Red Riding Hood? No, no, he didn't. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, good at the bedtime stories. He was, okay. He was much better at speeches. You know? <laughs> <coughs> he would give great speeches yeah. over breakfast. And, uh, did, uh, did your <coughs> mother, was she encouraged <coughs> to learn some Irish, or how, how did Irish work for her? My mother did, I won't say she went to night classes in, in Scholar Con learning Irish. But it was just too much, you know. Uh, um, we would then sort of correct her pronunciation. Uh, and I think that was just too much. Like, uh, she never got the hang of it. You know? Do you ever think <clears> she <throat> thought that when she met your father, and I presume they fell in love at, that, at <clears> some <throat> point early on, do you ever <clears> think <throat> that she fell in love with this notion of reviving the Irish language along with the person that was your father? Uh, she, yeah, I mean, she <clears throat> saw... A, great virtues in my father. She, he's a very earnest man. He really wanted to achieve things. Um, he wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a, you know, a raconteur. Like he, he could tell stories and, as I say, make speeches. But he, had, he was a very earnest, um, you know, an intellectual at some, in some ways. And uh, she admired him uh, for, for that. And uh, <clears throat> as I say, the ruthless part of his campaign is not something that she envisaged initially. And, um, but then she eventually found her own uh, humorous ways of getting around his, his um, yeah, his, 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 his um, ideological campaign. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> did, did her humor um, save you and your brothers and sisters from some of his uh, speeches? Yes. She did. She did, you know, and I, as I say, she rescued us with cakes and all, all, that, all that kind of thing. I mean, there's an incident I describe in Speckled People where, you know, because we were Irish speakers and there were no, um, very few Irish speakers on the street, uh, we'd no friends. We weren't allowed to bring any English speakers into the house. Um, so my mother went around the shops in Glasgow asking um, the shopkeepers, like, do they know anybody who speaks Irish? And they suggested the doctor's son. And uh, this is hilarious, actually, because we got to know the doctor's son. But in order for him to be allowed to come to our house, he had to go undergo an examination in the front room. And, and of course, he, he knew no Irish whatsoever. He, the only Irish he knew was Nielisigum, which is, was the Irish for I don't know. So there was this bizarre conversation where my father asked him, like, do you have a dog? And he would answer, I don't know. <laughs> and what does your father do? I don't know. Uh, but then my mother sort of very cleverly uh, said to my, my father, he wants to learn Irish. And like, if you let him come to the house, he'll soon speak Irish. And then his father will speak Irish. And then all the, his patients will speak Irish. <laughs> She had that wonderful, yeah. imaginative way of getting around him. You yeah. know, she understood his campaign. Was your, was, your, was your father so optimistic that he felt that would work out very smoothly? Yeah, he, she said, look, soon the whole country will be speaking <laughs> Irish, you know. And yeah. he agreed with her, you know, so. 
So in your little space uh, in Glastool, in your little Germany there, um, how old were you when you actually first travelled to Germany? And was that like you imagined? Yeah, um, we, I think we went to Germany when I was about five initially. And um, it was a, a true homecoming for us. Uh, because I could see it in my mother's eyes. She was got this huge welcome from her sisters. Um, and um, as I mentioned earlier on, like, we knew the geography of her hometown because she told us all these stories about it. And she was able to send us out for Beutchen, for the bread in the morning. And we knew exactly how to get to the bakery. Uh, so, yes, for us, it was a, a real homecoming. Uh, and, of course, we thought, OK, everybody's speaking German. They must be all related to us. <laughs> you know, the shopkeepers, the bakers, everybody... They're speaking German. They must be related. They must be our relatives. You did, you, did you throw your arms <laughs> around random strangers in the street because you were so happy to yeah, see other German them, speakers? Yeah, we spoke to them as, a, yeah. as, as, as we, oh, we knew them all. You know. <clears throat> what about then? Because in the Speckled People, um, it deals with the fact as well that you were bullied because you were seen as German by other mm. kids. Um, was that something that was really a huge relief to get to Germany and feel that you were like other kids? Yeah, I mean, that's th that, that, that sort of eccentricity that uh, it was attached to us, like of, of, and all foreigners in Ireland at the time in, in the 50s, where there just weren't any foreigners here. Uh, and that sort of it caused us a lot of trouble because we were called Nazis and put on trial and all those. Uh, the only places where, where I didn't feel that was in Germany, you know. The German past never came up. It was never mentioned in Germany. And also, it was never mentioned in the Gaeltacht, in Connemara. We felt very comfortable in Connemara. And then we came back here to Dublin, and we were, we were all sort of, yeah. we were back into our, our, our being called Nazis again. You know, so. And <clears throat> even though um, there would have been lots of Irish people at the time who would have been that old Republican, that anti-Britishness, they would have been part of the kind of, um, my enemy's enemy is my friend, and they would have been very pro-German. I presume um, for some of the children that were your age that you would have met in Dublin, uh, they were reading those English comics of that era, and they didn't quite fit in with their parents' view of my enemy's enemy. So were, were you familiar with the English comics of the day? Yeah, they had, they had them in the barber shop, uh, and yeah, it was like strange to us, like the, the Germans are always dying. Um, yeah, I think I think Irish public opinion, you know, was very quickly um, formed by um, British propaganda or British uh, views of the Second World War and and of um, yeah, and um, that changed sort of the whole mindset, you know. The, so the young people, younger people would would only know about Nazis and. Uh, and the Second World War, as as it was told from the British point of view, and the older generation were were sort of more friendly towards the Germans, uh, and um, it took a while for the the story of the Second World War and the Holocaust to actually take ground to 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 become known here. And it was only actually in the sixties with the trial of of Eichmann, uh, and that was such a huge event in world history that it's at that point that the Irish people 
got to know what really happened. Uh, and mm. I suppose famously, uh, de Valera sent uh, his condolences to the German embassy on the death of Hitler. Mm. I doubt there was many world leaders uh, were doing that. Um, do you think that mm. kind of thing had an effect on how the Irish people viewed Germans and Germany? Yeah, it would have been, I think, very much for the local audience like to, to say, you know, again, that we're, we're friends with everybody. We're not, we're not just friends with Britain. Or, um, it was a, a bizarre, uh, you know, it, it didn't make sense. Um, when you first mm. went to the Gael talk, you mentioned it there, was it kind of also uh, quite a relief because you didn't have to walk the streets of Glastool and Dunleary. You were able to go to a place where other kids were speaking the same language that you could speak. Did you find your Irish was mm. fit in easily in Connemara? Yeah, I think um, they admired us. You know, they particularly admired the lederhosen that we were wearing. You know? <laughs> they thought, like, where can we get these? You know, mm. Can we import them? straight into Connemara, you know. Um, yeah, I, did, I felt very comfortable there. Mm. You know, um, there wasn't, a, there was, it was a non-judgmental place. Uh, they hadn't ever seen uh, or had any contact with Germans before. Um, and it was wonderful for my mother to go there as well. She, she uh, fell in love with the landscape of Connemara uh, and and the people as well, uh, and they loved her. I mean, that, that, that they thought she was very exotic and uh, um, wanted to know everything about her when she was. And was that your summer holidays? Was that the family holiday to to Conum Is that where you went on holidays to Connemara? Yeah, initially we went there yeah. on holidays, and yeah. uh, then eventually we went there on scholarship, the Gaelin scholarship, where yeah. we stayed for three months and yeah. uh, came back fully Irish. Yeah. Uh, we n like native speakers coming back to Dublin. Yeah. Mm. Um, your, your father was from West Cork. Did, did, did you ever get a sense that why he chose the particular Connemara dialect? Uh, um, he wasn't a native speaker himself. He 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 learned Irish too, didn't he? Yeah. Um, he, my father was a, a strange person in that way that he tried to uh, undo all his memory. Uh, okay, it's, it's, it's possibly not that strange in, in those times, you know. Um, he never told us anything about his life. He never brought us to West Cork. Um, he wanted to remodel his entire uh, existence in a way. And he did that very successfully by marrying a German woman. And then also by not taking us down to the West Cork and taking us to, to Connemara instead. Uh, so as, as children, we didn't even know what questions to ask when it, when it came to his background. He Is wouldn't it, have answered them anyway. Did you have cousins then from his brothers and sisters that you didn't see? I presume they didn't speak Irish. Uh, yeah, we, we did, but we rarely met them. We had aunts and uncles that we met that lived here in, in, in Dublin, but they... Uh, and occasionally an aunt came up from West Cork uh, to visit us and uh, with this wonderful accent and, and, and they all smoked cigarettes and we thought they were fantastic people altogether. Um, but, they, you know, that connection didn't survive, really. It didn't 
last any longer than sort of one one evening uh, and that um, uh, so we didn't have a lasting connection with West Cork mm. um, for no particular reason but I think it's good to, to hear you read some of your own work uh, maybe mm. we'll take a break from the conversation and give you a chance to read something now if you have something <coughs> sure um, I've just published this new book called The Pages um, and it's uh, it's around it's set around the life of Joseph Roth, uh, the German novelist uh, who died in 1939, uh, a Jewish Austrian novelist, uh, and um, it was remarkable through relatives in Germany. I came across one of his books, one of his novels that had been uh, rescued from the fire and kept safe all through the Nazi years. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to hold this rescued book in my hand. And so I came across the idea of, as, an, as a novelist of allowing the book itself to speak, uh, to tell its own story over 100 years and all the, all the people that owned it and all the th thumbprints, dead and alive, that are in the book. So um, I read you from the beginning of the book, uh, a small passage. Here I am stored inside a piece of hand luggage, being carried through the departure lounge at JFK Airport. The owner of the bag is a young woman by the name of Lena Knecht. She's getting on a flight to Europe, bringing me home, so to speak, back to Berlin, the city in which I was written, where I was first printed by a small publishing house almost 100 years ago in 1924 where I was rescued from the fire on the night of the book burning in May 1933, the city from which my author fled the day Hitler came to power. My homeless author, my restless, refugee, itinerant, stateless writer on the run, living out of a suitcase, fleeing for his life. His name, Joseph Holt, the title, Rebellion. I was born... I came to life between the wars, during the Weimar Republic, what they call the waiting room between the First World War and the Second World War, between what was first thought to be the fields of honour and later became the fields of shame, a time of orphans and child poverty, women running the cities while men were left behind on the battlefield, defeated men who came back missing limbs and needed help to bring beer to their lips. Men with nightmares of decomposing hands emerging from the trenches. Cold winters they called God's fist sweeping across from the east. And hunger in the blank expression of a tram conductor munching on a box of chocolates left behind by a passenger after the cinema. What does time mean to a book? A book has all the time in the world. My shelf life is infinite. My second-hand value is modest. Some devoted collector might pick me up for a few dollars on eBay and keep me like a species gone into extinction. Rebellion. I have been print, reprinted many times, translated into many languages. Scholars can find me in most libraries. Twice I've been turned into a movie. But here I am in person. First edition, slightly bashed up and faded, readable as ever a short novel about a barrel organ player who lost his leg in the First World War. The cover image 
shows the silhouette of figure of a man without a wooden leg raising his crutch in anger at his own shadow. That's great. Mm. Thank you very much. Um, when you said that you, you came across that story of mm. the book being rescued from book burning, um, had you an idea that you were going to write something? Were you looking for something to write or did, did, did that just happen to you? Well, I'd heard about the book and then uh, I visited the people um, who had it in Magdeburg, this, this man uh, in Magdeburg. And I always thought, like, yeah, that's a fascinating detail. Um, as a novelist, you're always sort of choosing between what, what is a detail, what is a paragraph, what is a short story, and what could possibly be a novel. Uh, and it sort of grew in my imagination. And once I came across the idea then that the book could tell its own story and it, in this way that it could link up <clears throat> 1924 when it was published and all the people uh, who it came in contact with and to link that up with the people who now owned the book. Uh, it's now in the possession of this young woman uh, coming back from New York. Uh, so for me, it was a wonderful way for... <coughs> not only to <coughs> to um, to dispose of the author, and uh, I, I no longer had to be sort of the Irish German author, but you know this book itself became the author and telling uh, telling the story. You know, so. <coughs> so this particular book doesn't doesn't feature your father a lot. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or, or does, is he always present in, in your in your work? No, no, he's not. He's not present. <laughs> Other yeah. fathers in, are present yeah, okay. in, the, in the book. Um, <clears throat> I was reading. Uh, I had read some of your uh, earlier books before Speckled People, and Speckled People is so biographical, and um, perhaps even the name's gone out of my head. The kind of Nula Fuelon one again. It was very personal to you. But some of the novels from the from the earlier period, um, the Headbanger one. Um, <laughs> Maybe for people who aren't familiar as well, just give a kind of an idea. It was kind of a crimmy, is that if, if it's even something like that. Uh, it slightly reminded me of some of the Tatort uh, episodes. It's a mm -hmm. German television series for people who aren't familiar with that, a kind of Sunday night detective cult series. But did you, did you kind of go mm -hmm. in the 90s from writing those kind of novels to... W was it a bit of a jump then to write Speckled People? Yeah, I think, I think with the Headbanger... What I was trying to do was to tell the story of a very eccentric outsider or a, a person who actually, with everything he, he does, turns himself into an outsider, who completely misreads the country that he's living in and tries to rescue it from modernity. Um, and everything he comes across doesn't fit into the Ireland that he would like to have so in some ways like yes exactly like my father and, and perhaps a bit like myself too uh, that sort of I have sort of lots of things about Ireland that I I don't not necessarily like but you know don't fit into my vision of how the country should should be and um, it probably also reflects the strange way that I uh, talked to people in in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, I mean, I was well known for being weird um, and for saying things like that were 
very eccentric. Yeah. You know, people would make nor normal conversation. I wasn't able to do that. I would sort of prefer to quote some line from a novel. And people would just look at me and think, that doesn't make sense. Like, that doesn't <laughs> connect up with, to what we were just saying. And it would sort of cause sort of a blank in people. And they would just stare at me. And that was the end of the conversation. And in a way, I was trying to reproduce this kind of character as an <laughs> Irish cop whose everything he said was, was completely wrong. And so he's the ultimate outsider in the country. Even his wife doesn't understand what, what, he, what he's trying to say. You know? If you haven't read it, I, I'd recommend it. But I'm still not quite sure whether it's a, a mm. slight, slightly slapstick or, or kind of a comedy at times, and at times really dark and almost disturbing. Mm. There's a quick uh, review there for me. <laughs> but I'm not sure if that's no, it's, that's it's more disturbing enough. than anything. You know, um, so. When you were talking about mm. the, the the 70s and 80s and, and growing up and feeling that kind of space in, in a, maybe as a young adult and being a bit different, um, mm. did you did you view the north of Ireland and the troubles differently? Because I know you've used that as a backdrop uh, to to some of your work. Mm. Well, was that something that you've seen with different eyes because of your German background? Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it did. I mean, um, yes, so poss possibly. Uh, I saw the futility of of, of the war. I mean, it, I I understood this kind of uh, ideological war that my father got involved in. His was mainly cultural. He didn't he didn't ever aspire to kind of a military solution to to any kind of problem. Um, so the military conflict. In, in Northern Ireland was to me like a completely uh, worthless way of, of achieve, trying to achieve anything. Um, my mother very often would ask bizarre questions about like, I mean, why are they doing this? Like, and my father would try and explain it to her and, and she, she would sometimes, I think, deliberately misinterpret what he was saying. Um, and I think it's... It's possibly I had possible that I had the same view as Joseph Boyce, you know, the famous um, uh, artist uh, Joseph Boyce, who, who came over to Ireland. He was at one stage invited up to Coleraine to, to give a lecture, and when he went up there, he tried to solve the northern problem. <laughs> uh, and he, what he did was he got these chalk blackboards and he set them out on the on the floor and he drew all these diagrams like you know the mathematical diagrams you know connecting people or objects from one part to the people and objects in another part and they made total sense to him but to nobody else uh, and um, I think I think the story was like he he walked away and they were the, boards were stolen. I don't know what they ever turned up <laughs> afterwards. So the, the north of Ireland was never solved because Joseph Boyce's work was stolen at that point. Um, Probably um, a valuable, valuable work of art. Very now. valuable work yeah. of art now. Yeah. But um, yeah, unfortunately, they did, had no impact on the, you on think, the troubles. Do you think sometimes that uh, because the difference between Catholics and Protestants in Germany would be less or far less than the difference between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, that it's harder for Germans sometimes to understand what the Northern conflict was about. Yeah, I mean, Germans, and they, they, they see the divide between Catholics and Protestants 
a purely a cultural thing, you know, um, because Heinrich Böll, the German writer, came from very much the same area as my, my mother, the, the Rhineland. And they had a very uh, rebellious attitude towards the Nazis at the beginning. Uh, uh, they, they told jokes against Hitler and things like that. And, um, and it was... It was not sort of, it was an instinctive uh, rebellion against uh, authoritarian values. And it's almost like that it came from the Catholic, uh, Catholic religion. They had sort of that rebellion against the Catholic Church itself. Uh, nobody really uh, liked the twin spires of the cathedral in Cologne. They mistrusted that sort of idea of hierarchy in uh, and, and, and Bowles sort of brought that kind of mistrust of religion and mistrust of authority with him. It became sort of one of his great sort of motivating forces as a writer. But it also came with this kind of great faith in, in, the, in Catholicism as well. You know? Was where your mother from, was that east or west of the Rhine? Because I've often heard Germans say uh, west of the Rhine was where the Treaty of Versailles said there was no German troops. So they had a very different attitude in the kind of interwar years in the Weimar Republic because they didn't really have a German mm. army. They had far fewer Nazis and stuff. And um, mm. I'm, no, I'm massively oversimplifying it, but, uh, but mm. people would sometimes say to me that Cologne on the west of the uh, Rhine was a far different place from Dusseldorf, mm. kind of just up the river on the other side. Of the bank, was that kind of does that fit with your well, how you see your family in Germany? Yes, yeah, so it, it, it it's interesting, you know, that you know <clears throat> when my parents met, like uh, they 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 both came from countries that were occupied. Um, the, that part of the Rhineland district in Germany was occupied by the Belgians and the and the French after the First World War, so maybe that was the connection they had initially that they had. Uh, um, liberations of some sort yeah. in, in mind. Yeah. Did you ever come across mm. that uh, um, Cologne was occupied by the uh, Dublin Fusiliers at the end of the, of the mm. First World War? And uh, there's some letters mm. home where they said they, they found it very nice because it was so Catholic and they were quite at ease oh, yeah. going to Mass yeah. in German. Mm. Um, mm. When it comes to um, uh, German writers, uh, was that something, did you read in German from an early age where there German novels at home, or when did you first come in, in contact with um, German yeah. writers? Yeah, I mean, I, I did read German from a very early age. Like, his, <clears throat> Heinrich Böll's Irish journal it came into our house. It was sent to us by aunts in Germany when I was around 15 or 14. So I read that, and I, it was extraordinary because it was, it was like a, reading something my mother had written, you know? She had seen Ireland in the, with exactly the same kind of romantic uh, uh, idealism uh, that, that uh, Bell saw it. And I've, of course, I had a huge interest in Bell and many writers, uh, uh, German writers after that. I don't know if they did me any good. You know, I, I, reading Thomas Bernard now was not the right thing <laughs> for me to do as an eccentric. I was extremely weird anyway. I'm trying to get and this vision of you at 19 at this kind of party quoting <laughs> Thomas Bernhardt to, to impress young women. I, I, it didn't work. Anybody who doesn't know Thomas <laughs> Bernhardt, he's, he's, 
he is the ultimate eccentric in terms of um, uh, his writing and his, his whole persona. Um, he just exaggerates everything like his, his and he's a, he's a wonderful energetic hatred for everything that's Austrian. Schnitzel he can't stand, the Lodenmantel he can't, it gives him the creeps. Um, you know, it's, and I found all that sort of thing wonderful as a sort of <laughs> 19 year old. It gave me great sort of fuel to, you know, and I thought I could be like that too, you know, but it didn't do me any good. When you first read the um, Irish's Tagus book, that my Irish journal, when um, Heinrich Bill came to Ireland and wrote of his experiences here, did you think it was accurate? Did you think he's spot on with what he's saying, or did you think, I, I don't, what's he talking about? Well, yeah, no, it, I, I thought there was a very true version of um, of Ireland. I mean, I, we went down to the Connemara in those days, and it was incredibly poor and. Uh, it, I, th I thought his his, his his description of Ireland is very much like the description that my mother has in her diaries. Um, like walking into, getting shelter from the rain in a fisherman's cottage in, in Connemara um, and not being able to speak to them because they only spoke Irish. Uh, it, that, that was what Connemara was like for us. And do you think that, was there a sense that the, the Irish were happy in their poverty because they were less materialistic? And was that something that um, was very different from how Bull seen, seen post-war Germany? Yeah, for, for Heinrich Bull, it was sort of, describing Ireland almost became like a sort of a, a way of telling the Germans like what, what they've lost uh, in their rush to kind of uh, get into this economic miracle into into after the war they had left a lot behind um, and I think his discoveries in Ireland almost like show everything that 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 uh, was missing in the German soul after after the war um, including that kind of innocence um, and and on the reverse side like the Irish people this kind of description of Irish people as sort of a an innocent people, you know, a man sort of happy with a packet of cigarettes, like that's a, a man with a packet of sweet afton was a wealthy man in Ireland in those days. Uh, that whole description was sort of a terrible vision for Irish people. We wanted to get away from it as fast as possible. We wanted to join the Germans in their economic miracle, um, which you then, we then did in the sort of seven, uh, you, know, it, you know, in the 90s eventually, but... Uh, so, sorry to keep bringing it back to your father, but did he read um, um, My Irish Diary and did, did he like Bull's depiction of a mm. poorer, happier Ireland? Um, I, d I, don't, I don't remember him reading it. Yeah. Know? So, Because uh, politically <coughs> he would have been quite right-wing, wouldn't he, in, in his views? Um, yes, but the strange thing about him is like that he may have had, you know, this insular way of um, nationalist way of, of constructing his family and, and his country. Uh, he then also had this very open-minded, you know, link to Germany. And um, so a very sort of multicultural version of Ireland, which didn't exist in, that, in those days. Um, 
Now, his main preoccupation was to sidestep Britain and to silence the British, the English language. Uh, that was his preoccupation. And he, he, he was exceedingly proud of the fact that he had brought a Catholic, Irish-speaking, German-speaking family into one of the most Protestant <laughs> West Brit enclaves of Dublin in Glastool. That, to him, was sort of a great source of pride. And he marched us up and down in Lederhosen. Uh, and he could see the looks he was getting from everyone. Um, um, it's almost like a pageant and a sort of a comedy <laughs> now at this point. But it was a sort of a, a piece yeah. of drama that he, he and my mother created. Yeah. So when it came to your turn to be a parent, did you bring your children up in Irish and German? No, I didn't. I my, allowed my children to do anything they liked except smoke. Sweet Afton, they, they didn't get a packet freedom. of Sweet Afton. Sorry? <laughs> they didn't get a packet of Sweet Afton so they no, could be authentically Irish. Or anything. No, no, they, I thought it was terrible to inflict that kind of language. Uh, um, any rules in terms of language? I mean, uh, I'm so, so much aware that it's a, sort of an instrument of communication and uh, we were very much stunted in that sense like we didn't know how to communicate with people outside uh, my my main memory of it as a child was was looking over my shoulder um it's it's possibly a total miracle that i became a writer in the first place because language was one of my big problems and okay and that sort of led to the fact that i cared for language and sort of wanted to express myself in some way or find a way of, of uh, you know, achieving a voice of some sort. Um, um, <clears throat> do you think it helps you as a writer? Um, do you write first, if you're writing in English, do you write in English, but are you sometimes mm. translating from German and even from Irish when you're putting together books? Does that help? Yeah, it, it, there is a sort of this echo of the German language constantly uh, floating around, like, you know, in the background. Uh, but not only the German language, but sort of the shift in the world view that happens, you know. Uh, I'm sure it happens to everybody in Ireland when they go down to the Gaeltacht in Connemara. Suddenly the view of Ireland and of the world changes. Um, it's a smaller country. Uh, the rest of the world is very far away. Um, same thing happens to me when I walk into a bakery in Berlin. I'm in this kind of different... Um, in this different place in the world, you know, and I diff have a different, different view of the world. And <clears throat> do the Berliners think you're from the Rhineland when they hear you speak? They do. They think I'm sort of, yeah, up from the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did any of your children take a deep interest in the, in the German cultural side of their family, even though they wouldn't have been raised in German? So. Yeah, I've, I have a son, uh, Coleman, now who lives in Berlin, okay. and who's married to a, a German from the East, and they have a small uh, child now, aged five, yeah. who speaks both, Irish, both English and German, and who mixes up the words exactly the, way, the same way we, we did. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's wonderful to see that. Yeah. Uh, Your son wouldn't be uh, very strict on the speaking of English at home, would he? No, <laughs> no. I mean... Yeah, just checking. He, he tries to encourage the English language yeah. in, in 
He didn't get his grandfather's gene of, of being very strict with the, with the language, that they were, the home language. No, no. Uh, it, it, he hasn't complicated things with the Irish language as yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I confess when uh, I'm a non-native Irish speaker who decided to bring up my own children, Oscailge, uh, in Irish at home. So uh, when I read Speckled People, my children were quite young, and my wife said to me, <coughs> now reading that book, um, you should be aware that you not to be too strict on the children. So I was saying to Hugo that I did take lessons from that, and I thought uh, maybe it's a bit better if their Irish isn't quite so good, but they do like me uh, a bit more. <laughs> So yeah. it was a trade-off that I got from yeah. speckled people. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I owe you for that <coughs> anyway. Oh, that's good. Um, I'm glad it had some <laughs> effect, you know. Um, mm. When it comes mm. to, again, that cultural mix and those different influences and stuff, do you have that um, question of Heimat when, when that comes home to you, mm. that, that German word that means so much more than home? Yeah, it's an interesting word, you know. Um, I recently uh, went to a, um, a concert of Dave, David Byrne of the Talking Heads, um, and he sings this song, Home is where I want to be, but I guess that I'm already there. It's this lovely contradiction, you know. It's actually something that we're constantly looking for, even though we already have it. <clears throat> uh, so home has always been this hypothetical thing. It's a word that <clears throat> was not spoken about in Germany after the war because <clears throat> it constituted this kind of a political dimension. Uh, <clears throat> and I think because so much of Germany was destroyed, it almost made um, the word home a, a kind of nonsense in a way, you know, <clears throat> what people could sort of store from that, from that idea. Um, my own father... <clears throat> very often said, you know, your home is your language, you know. He had this actually really interesting way of, of looking at home because he was sort of hiding his own form of home uh, and creating this new version. Like home, home is kind of, and all, I, all forms of identity are a construction, effectively. Uh, we, we make a story of ourselves and that sort of effectively becomes our, our uh, version of home. Um, and does the German mm, notion mm. of Heimat still have a lot of, still create a lot of distance between a, a kind of a sentimental patriotism and anything that seems too nationalistic? If you're, if you're over fond of home, is it a kind of more worrying thing when you're German? <clears throat> yeah, I, th I, I think Germans are, are, are quite comfortable now with the, the idea of home. You've a new generation sort of that's growing up sort of after the Berlin Wall uh, came down um, <clears throat> who don't know that sort of um, troubled version of home or who have sort of feel at home with sort of multiple versions of Germanness um, and just a, a much more global version. I mean, nowadays you ask somebody where, where is home and they say, yeah, well, I actually live in Dublin or live in Cologne or somewhere like that. But home is about, like, the music I listen to and the books I read and the television programmes, the series, the Netflix series you're watching at the moment. So it's a, it's a much more 
broad version, you know, than what we had in, in our day, like where your home was your actual territorial space plus the religion you had and the language you spoke and, and the narrow version of history that you saw from, your, from that point in the world. Now we have a sort of much more global version of that and everybody is a sort of a, not only a sort of a, 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 a match on a mix of identities, but also this kind of mix of cultural artefacts that we carry along with us. And tell me then, when, when you're in Germany and you, the, the Berliners think you're from the Rhineland somewhere, but when they find out then, oh, you're also Irish and you're an Irishman, did they have yeah. a sense, do you get a sense that they go, okay, Ireland, and they have this, um, the Grüne Insel, do they go straight for the, do they ask you to sing a Christy Moore song or something? Is that a German view of Ireland, do you think? Yes, I think, I think um, there, is, there is that stereotypical view of, of the Irish people, but that's, that's everywhere, like, as a heavy drinking people. I, I never drank enough for the Germans or the <laughs> Americans, you know. Um, and it's, it's, it's um, yeah, but I think, I think there's such a, a great mixture of um, to and froing of, of Germans and Irish. I think we kind of understand each other much better now, now than, these, than these stereotypes. Um, probably uh, going to finish up soon, but I, I didn't really get to ask you. I wanted to ask you about the, the German sense of humour. Um, perhaps it's the British more so than the Irish, but they give out and say the Germans have no sense of humour. Um, do you think mm. that's fair? No, not at all. I mean, uh, the humorous person in, in our family was always my mother. My father was the sort of very strict, serious, serious man. And I, I know so many people in Germany, like, they're very funny. I mean, I, uh, it's, you know, I, d I don't understand where that stereotype comes from. You know? Perhaps some of the comic books, like, was it Hotspur and Bullet or something that you're mentioning from the mm. 1950s or something, the British comics, they mm. probably didn't show the German soldiers having a lot of humour. It wasn't a depiction of Germany that they were that they were trying to portray at that time. Yeah, it's a it's a different type of humour. Uh, it's 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 more to do with irony and uh, it's sort of an, an, an internal comedy. Uh, there's a comedy in the words, uh, which is very much there in their writers as well. You know, particularly people like uh, Heinrich Böll and. Uh, he used irony as a sort of a comedy. Uh, um, and, of course, Thomas Bernard, people like that. You know. <coughs> so if you were recommending then to Irish people who weren't that familiar with German humour uh, where to find it, is there, is there something you could recommend? Yeah, there are lots, lots of humorous writers. Uh, um, <coughs> yeah, I mean, that's... Perhaps we'll get uh, uh, Oya in the library to have a selection of uh, humorous German writers. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, back to your current book then. Um, and maybe we'll go out on another reading from that one. But um, before we do, I suppose, um, that idea of a book being rescued from a fire is a, it's a, it's a very powerful notion that the book itself was rescued. I didn't quite get the bit in between. The person who rescued it, did they hide it or were...? They hide it, hid it in the library and kept it, kept it safe through the Nazi years. Yeah. I mean, this is not, it's not a unique uh, thing. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there are 
lots of people who kept kept books hidden, uh, uh, but you know it was always a risk. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> and the writer escaped Nazi Germany. Um, did he survive? No, jo Joseph Roach um, died as an alcoholic in in Paris in, in 1939, okay. but he was always on the run yeah. from yeah. from the Nazis. It, that was just before the Nazis entered entered uh, France, and his wife was uh, had mental health issues, which then um, <coughs> forced them to sort of. Uh, put her into a, uh, a mental institution in Vienna, and she then sort of became part of the euthanasia program that the Nazis carried out. Okay. Um, did your Did your research for the book take you to many interesting places? Well, it it more, was more uh, research um, through the through the books and through the literature that's written about um, Joseph Rode, but it was extraordinary that. It was during COVID times, actually, that I was finishing the book. And I decided to contact the archives in Vienna to see if there were any records of her, of Friedehout, being incarcerated in the, in the institutions there. And they sent me the case notes. Uh, and this is an extraordinary event for me as a writer to come across these case notes, uh, which had never been discovered before. And they were... Uh, never written about, and they revealed things about Frieda Roth and Joseph Roth that that uh, I never knew before. And but it, beyond that, it was a, an extraordinary way of of finding her and bringing her back to life. I was always wanted her to be the main character in a way uh, in this book. I suppose as a writer, you have a kind of huge personal responsibility about how you portray when you get those actual notes from that hospital, how you portray that in the novel. Is, mm. that, is that something that weighs on you? Yes, I mean, it was... But mostly I felt, as a writer, it was a, a huge opportunity. Here I was with sort of the, you know, a primary source. Everything else about Joseph Roth was, came to me through books and, uh, <clears throat> you know, images that had already been published many times. Uh, uh, and I suppose it was my own engagement with his novels that I found interesting. But here was a primary source, something that had not been seen by anyone. Uh, and it was almost like walking into, uh, a, into the padded cell with, with Frida. I mean, there is a sort of well-known moment in his life where, he, where Joseph Roke goes, goes to one of these... Um, uh, institutions in Vienna and decides to spend the night with Frida in the cell, even though she's, she's already gone beyond uh, rescue at that point and her hair is shorn and she's got very extremely thin. Uh, but he makes this wonderful last attempt to rescue her with his love. Yeah. Well, we'll go out on another reading from that and just before we do, I suppose, my thanks to Hugo, of course. My thanks to you, the audience, to um, all the Near FM team, to Dorothy, Neil and Gary, who helped us with the setup today. And, of course, especially thanks to Oya and Ulrike for all the support. And it's great that the Goethe Institute in Dublin can celebrate its 60th um, anniversary with people.
Yeah, it, this is um, <clears throat> just a very short passage about um, yeah the, the 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 book itself speaking. They're on a flight from New York to to Berlin. <clears throat> At this point, I have the urge to contribute. A book wants to get out there and speak up. I want to tell them that I spent two years on the shelf right next to a small book on insects. I was written by a, it was written by a French author who went out into his garden one day and had the, idea, had the idea of recording all the different species he found there. He named them, made drawings of them and collected them into his journal as if they were part of his family. It was full of warmth, that book. It, we became great friends. It was the happiest time of my life, living with all that buzzing like a constant summer. But this is absurd. I cannot speak directly to Lena. I remain a silent passenger. I'm nothing until my story is set in motion by a reader. What is it they say about a reading? It's like thinking with somebody else's brain, stepping inside the mind of the other. And how I crave for a reader, somebody to breathe life back into my pages. We, us books, that is, tend to stay out of live situations. We talk among ourselves in libraries at night. You think public libraries are quiet places? You sh should hear the racket, the debates, the sheer volume of opinions going back and forth among the shelves until dawn. Everyone talking at once. It's like an enormous thought fight, like an ongoing trial in which each book throws in its own piece of evidence without any conclusive verdict ever being reached. Some books are louder than others, some downright overbearing and full of self-regard, some droning on like endless lectures, grinding out warnings, some brightly feel-good, well-dressed, trapped inside their own plot, some just being themselves, speaking only when they have something to say. At times, it's hard to get a word in, the sound of voices rising to a humming din, all cutting across each other like a parliament in session, until the librarian returns in the morning and the hush is restored. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 